preach on increasingly generous, not necessarily that early as to us with describing it with our stuff, but often decreasingly generous with our judgments of other people. Recently heard of a story uh, shared by someone in our community who has a friend who was disinvited by his daughter to her 21st because he was unwilling to address a friend in a way that the friend needed to be addressed. He's paying for the 21st, by the way. Put yourself in those shoes where you, you're in a position where you uh, are canceled by a person that you love. It's, it's a strange world, and maybe all of us have found ourselves in a situation similar to that, where it's either a close family member or a colleague or a, a cousin or somebody in that kind of uh, space who has kind of distanced themselves from another family member. I, I don't know if you uh, felt it when it was the vaccines or the mask situation. In fact, some of those still have a little bit of heat under them and can still flare up, and there are some strong opinions. And what can happen when you're on the other side is you get shut out. You get sent into utter darkness by other people. It's called the cancel culture, for those of you that haven't heard the term, whereby it's really a modern version of judgment. James is having a go at a very complicated human reality that we find it easy as people to judge people, to shut them off, to close them off if they have a differing view or opinion to ours. Carl Truman, one of my favorite thinkers on understanding the culture we're in and the speed of change with which our culture has uh, kind of experienced this change, he says this, when it comes to moral arguments, the tendency of the present age is to assert our moral convictions as normative and correct by rejecting those with which we disagree as irrational prejudice rooted in personal emotional preference. What's he trying to say there? He's saying that when we disagree with someone, we don't just disagree and go, let's agree to disagree. We typically go, you know what? Your opinion is irrational. It's prejudiced. It's rooted in personal emotional preference. And I just cannot tolerate that. I just can't. And even sometimes we use the word, I just don't feel safe around you. If you go to uh, universities, they will cancel certain lecturers who will pitch up at a, at a university and they'll say, that lecturer, their views don't make me feel safe. The, the term safety has become a, a, a kind of redefined term. Judgment has become a real part of our society. And one of the realities is that we've lost our ability to to judge morality, what is actually right and wrong in our wider society. There is now no consensus, says Truman, listen to this, there's now no consensus about what it is that should evoke our empathy and sympathy. The baby in the womb or the pregnant teenager whose life will be utterly disrupted by having a child. The, the transgender teen who wants to become a woman or his parents, who fear he's making a terrible mistake. We live in a society that has lost their moral compass and are asking big questions about what is right and what is wrong. And we're struggling as a society to even know who we should empathize with. This articulates so powerfully the realities of what we're going through. 
Now, not all judgment is this intense and going through these heavy, uh, you know, postmodern questions. Sometimes our, our judgment is a lot more simple. You know, we, we, we don't like the way the person drives, and so we, we, we cut them off, and we can't, you know, or, or we don't like their parenting style, or maybe they judged our parenting style, and you, you cancel them because of how they spoke about that, or, or, or your views on the environment could be one of them, or vaccines, or masks, or global warming. But we can, we can judge people. We set them at a distance based on these, uh, these, these sense of, of what we deem to be moral. And James is, is trying his best here to coach us into wisdom. And I'm so grateful that he wrote this such a long time ago to hopefully help us in a time, in a cultural moment that so badly needs this kind of wisdom and coaching. One last quote from Carl Truman, because he, he, seem, he seems to say, firstly, we've lost our, our ability to understand what's morally right. But secondly, he says, we've lost our ability to, to believe together as a community. He says, modern ethical discourse is chaotic because there's no longer a strong community consensus on the nature of the proper ends of human existence. What he's trying to say there is he's saying that there isn't a communal agreement about why humans exist. Half of the world is saying we exist by sheer gathering of atoms, evolution. We came together, the fittest survive and the weakest don't. And so you get to choose whatever your existence and your reality is. And you can choose your truth and you can choose your meaning. And so there's a, and, and then when you get to choose that, there is such a wide diversity of reasons why humans exist in that worldview. And so we are in this very complex space where it becomes very tricky to walk into society. I've found myself uh, listening to Cape Talk often. Anybody listen to Cape Talk? Not necessarily suggesting you must or mustn't, but I do it from time to time. And oh my goodness, do I find myself clenching tighter over the steering wheel while I do it. I feel like the, the, my nails are digging into as I listen to some of the perspectives and the views of the, 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 the hosts and our society around us. And I sometimes pick up my phone and I go, this is my moment to change the world. I am sending my voice note and it is going to go on air. And I have done one or two, but they've been quite anemic and more about sports and things. But every now and again, I think I'm going to shape culture here. I'm going to stand up. And I find myself chickening out because, one, I haven't had the time to really carefully think about it. Two, I'm terrified of what somebody's going to say and how I'm going to get shut down if I didn't think carefully about what I say. And so often, we as society walk into certain places just terrified that we're going to say the wrong thing, we're going to do the wrong thing, that we're going to be, in James's words, judged, shut out. In modern culture's words, we're going to be Cancelled. Carl Truman says that it's because there isn't a communal consensus around what actually is the reason for existence. What is moral? What is ethical? What is right? It's a tricky world in which we live. And James has a complex answer, and it is complicated. If you're hoping because of this, uh, you know, rousing intro that I have, you know, five simple steps and it's all going to be easy, uh, don't assume that because it isn't simple. It is a tricky world in which we live. But I want to suggest that James does give us some helpful tips around this concept of learning to love wisely, in learning to engage in a world that does judge easily. 
and that we would become the kind of community and the kinds of people who understand our world, who learn to outlove our world, not because we put our heads in the sand and pretend this stuff isn't happening, but because we immerse ourselves in the wisdom and the kindness of God. He is ancient in his wisdom, and he is unsurprised by our cultural moment. Isn't that a relief? God isn't looking going, oh, I didn't think about the 21st century. I had it nailed until they go, those guys arrived. So let's look at this passage and First thing we're going to find, and it really goes a bit like this. We've got God's way, and we've got our failure, and then we've got God's redemption, and we've got our faith. And so I'm going to take us through those four steps. Firstly, it seems like James offers God's way. God's way. In verse 8, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Could be the end of the sermon. Easy. Thanks, James. Just love your neighbor as yourself, and we are sorted. Let's walk out of here. Is it that easy? It's not that easy. It's really tricky. But, but James is saying that there is a way that if you could pull this off, society would flourish. In fact, the age to come, the kingdom of God is going to be this. It's going to be the bliss of a world in which we are not so obsessed with ourselves. We don't finish everyone's sentence with a story about how we relate to this thing. We listen to everyone's story, and we affirm and we learn to love what God is doing in each other's lives. There is a sense of self-giving love that is going to be permeating our world. But at the moment, our world is permeated with a sense of self-centered, lovelessness, often judgmental. And so this beautiful truth that comes all the way from the beginning of the story of Israel, Leviticus 19, 18, is actually what James is quoting here, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's calling us to this beautiful ancient truth that, of course, Jesus then goes and says, this is the law. There is nothing more important for humanity to get right than to learn to, of course, love God with all their heart and then to love others as you would have them love you. There's, there's no wiser way to live. It is the golden standard for humanity. But there are two applications I think that we need to understand because as we listen to this, if you preached this out to society, everyone would go, great. But the problem, as Carl Truman has uh, re reminded us, is that there needs to be a, con a consensus. What is love? You see, I could say, love me as I want to be loved, but my definition of love may be different to yours. And so the lowest common denominator becomes what we now call tolerance. You just accept anyone and everything for whatever they choose to do, and there isn't a sense of communal consensus around what love actually is. And the second challenge is that there isn't an authority. You see, James talks about this royal law. He's harking back to two key moments in history. First, he's harking back to the moment where God chose a people called Israel. And he said, no, you don't need a king. I will be your king. And I will lead you. And I will give you a royal way. And you'll be my royal priests. And you will show the world what it means to live under God. And I will be your authority. And I'll teach you how to live. And the key way is not just that you have communal consensus, but you live under the authority of another. We're allergic to the A word, authority. We live in a world that goes, nobody tells me what to do, not even God. 
Nobody tells me how to spend my money, how to use my sexuality. Nobody gets to do that. But if you don't have that, then you don't really have a definition of real love. You don't really have a definition of what it means to actually love a person as they would want to be loved. That's the the point of what he's going to. He's saying this royal law is about something that's given from God because the creator understands how we are created, and then he teaches us to love each other based on the creator's preferred design, on what causes human flourishing. Of course, this is uh, emphasized by Jesus himself. He spends so much time in the Sermon on the Mount essentially saying this is what it means to love your neighbor and to make sure that in a way you are uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. So we need to make sure that if we understand, if we're going, yes, the royal law, there's two key components. There's a communal consensus which is why people join a local church and they say, hey, let's understand this body of truth, as, as, as Paul called it, the full counsel of God by which we live our lives. We, we live under God. The scriptures coach us on what we believe to be morally right, what we believe to truly be love. And then we hold each other to that and we, we encourage one another towards this beautiful uh, commitment that we all share in what does it mean to be morally good? What does it mean to understand finances, to understand sexuality, to understand how we use our words? We, we commit ourselves not to the elders' convictions, but towards the scriptures' convictions around what does it mean to truly love. It's this royal decree that God gives us that we commit ourselves to. And that's why Claire reminded us so beautifully that as the church, and not just our church, all churches, we're a kind of outpost of eternity. We're an outpost of the age to come. We're little representations of the world that is to come. We're meant to be here. There's meant to be a sense of we love each other. We, we're under the same authority, and, and because of that, we're learning to flourish. Our lives aren't butting up against each other. This is where we learn to judge rightly, where we learn to help each other to flourish. There is a problem, however. It's my second point. There is this human aspect. And that's why, in verse 9, James says it like this. He says, but if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. You see, what he's saying here is that that there's this tendency in all of us to have a kind of selective generosity in our hearts. We're generous often towards people who sin in a similar way to us. Uh, We had this beautiful conversation in our life group where we've got these conscious and subconscious biases where we're biased towards people who tend to like the same stuff that we do and and to be into the same stuff that we do. And, and actually, we're tending also towards the kinds of people who, who let each other off the hook in certain ways. It's amazing how society will gather themselves, whether it's gangs or groups of men or women. We gather around our preferences, but often we gather also around the common things that we're willing to wink at and pretend aren't really happening. 
You go to a pub and you see a bunch of people and the way that they talk about their spouses and the low value maybe that they have of marriage. That's a generalization. Don't judge me or you're allowed to go to a pub if you want to. Or you go to different places and you find groups of people who, who've justified consumerism and just rampant shopping. And, and, and that's their thing and they find each other around that. Or whether it's gangs and whatever else they may be, we, we find a selective generosity and we gather ourselves into groups around what we think is okay. And James basically says, you can't choose one thing and go, you know what, it doesn't matter. If you've committed adultery, it's fine, you know, but just don't commit murder. Or if you've committed murder, but he says if you've done one, you've missed it all. If you've committed just one of these things, or if you've said, it's okay, don't worry, you're pretty much getting 95%, just don't worry about the five. You know, we've all made mistakes. He says, if you've committed one, you've committed them all. You're, you're guilty before a holy God. You're, you're not upholding the royal law. Your conscience is stained. You're stuck with this thing. It is irre irreversibly marked upon you. And this is true of our lives. This is true of my life. It's true of every human being who, who is, uh, who's got a memory, who's, who's made in the image of God. We, we know inherently that we are not made to just have clear consciences if we've done something wrong. Our consciences remind us. They come back. They accuse us. They keep reminding us that we just haven't done what we know we should have done. And so what often will happen, there's usually about three or four or five different responses. Let me suggest a few when we think about our sin or our shortcomings in our life. One, we can tend to defend our darkness. We go, it's actually fine. This is why. And we can create a thesis or we can create an argument in our head and we make sure that our spouses agree with us and they go, Yes, because they're terrified to argue with you again, but they subtly disagree with you. But, but after the years of disagreeing, they've learned to stop disagreeing. Just nod and smile because you've justified this behavior in your head. You've made it okay in your mind or you found people who will just not argue with you in that. We defend our darkness. Also, sometimes we just get defeated and we simply just feel like we are the victims of our own or others' uh, poor decision-making. Or... We live in a kind of denial about our sinful realities. And maybe just go, sin isn't real. You can find a whole bunch of people who will agree with you there as well. You just do you. You live up to whatever standards you choose, and you just deny the fact that sin is at all real. We all kind of live our lives in this way, but the problem is, is we haven't fulfilled the royal law, and we are essentially in trouble we become a transgressor of the law, and our consciences remind us of it. Thank God for James, because he doesn't stop there. He says there is a solution. There's a divine answer, a divine reality to this. There is God's beautiful redemption. Look at verse 12, how he says it like this. So speak and so act as those who will be judged under the law of liberty. Isn't that lovely? I want to focus on that particular part, under the law of liberty. You see here, James is alluding simply to the gospel. The law of liberty was this new way of existing that God had brought in through Jesus Christ. 
See, there was this reality that up until then, no human being could match up to these incredibly difficult commands. And it was actually pretty easy to accuse anyone and everyone of some kind of sin, and you would be able to find them guilty. It was simple. You just, there, were, there were these rules, and they weren't matched up to. And so everybody knew, thank God for the, the, the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, but it, but it wasn't enough. They knew that inherently. There was one who would redeem Israel, who would redeem the world from this guilty conscience, from this horrible experience of living in the courtroom, basically trying to justify our behavior all the time, but never totally 100% certain that we could be justified. Think about your time spent with your closest friends. Just you're leaning back on the deck chair, and a person's starting to get a little heated as they're chatting about it, and the fire's crackling in the corner, and you're listening to a person. How often are they utilizing their favored energy, their best energy, to justify their behavior? The way that they do things, the way that they engaged with a person, the what they said to that colleague and why they had to be so harsh or why they chose to just walk away. We spend a lot of our lives justifying why we do what we do, right? It's a lot of our energy. And if you don't do it publicly, oh my gosh, do we have overactive inner dialogues where we spend our lives driving home going, I wish I had said that or if I had another chance. I would, I would say it like this. And we find ourselves working out this argument. We're living in the courtroom of our own heads and our own hearts, trying to justify, trying to work out why this person is wrong, why we're justified to feel angry or disappointed or hurt at them. And into this solution comes this beautiful law of liberty. The law of liberty, the, the law of freedom, the gospel of Jesus Christ. James has begun to allude to the power of Jesus in this wonderful story. And in verse 13, he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, this is the moment where Jesus steps into the story as the only one who never was guilty. He's the only one who walked through this life without ever wondering, did I do wrong? Do I need to justify myself? Do I need to? Have I done something that would offend them? Now, now I'm guilty, I'm wrong. He had this most remarkable, clear conscience before God and before man. No one else got this. No one else got to experience the sense that they are sinless. And yet the power of the gospel is that he's the only one who got punished so gruesomely despite the fact that he was so innocent. Now, I want you to, if you've heard this a thousand times, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to refresh your soul and your conscience to the beauty of this. If you're hearing this for the first time, I hope that it fizzes and sparks in your mind. Because the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus comes and lives the life that we could never live. He steps into the courtroom and he takes the punishment of our own guilty consciences upon himself. And he takes our hand and he walks us out of the courtroom because the judge makes him guilty and he says, you are now free to live with a clear conscience. Not because you're incapable of sin, 
But because in Jesus, I have taken the punishment that your sins deserve upon myself so that you can live in clear relationship with God and you can live in clear relationship with others. And every time you do something that you know dishonors the heart of God, you are in relationship with God and you have a mediator called Jesus Christ. And the moment you duff it, the moment you unhelpfully judge someone, the moment you say something or do something that you know dishonored the heart of Jesus Christ, you run straight to him and with love and honesty, you do what the scriptures call, you repent. You say, Jesus, I duffed it. I messed it up. It didn't honor your heart. And I just thank you for your forgiveness that washes me clean because you died on my behalf. You took the punishment of that sin, of the hundreds that I did before, and the many I will do in the future. But I thank you that I have a clear conscience before you. And you do it, and you walk into the world with a little bit of a lighter step with a sense of joy in your heart because you are free under the law of liberty. You're liberated by the gospel. And James is calling us to understand this. He's calling us to know this beautiful reality. There's a saying that goes like this. Blessed is the man whose sins are judged in this life. Blessed is the man whose sins are judged in this life. That's essentially the gospel Blessed are you when you receive the goodness of God in this life through Jesus Christ and you realize that your sins were judged in Jesus Christ so that you are free. The good news for those who long for justice and you want human corruption to be gone, judgment is coming. There's two judgments. There's today's judgment that you can put all your sins on Jesus and say thank you, but there is another one. Shane reminded us in our prayer time. He will return. He will judge all corruption. There will be a day of reckoning. Like it or not, ignore him or not, believe in whatever you choose to believe in, he is coming back. The bad news is that if we don't receive this gift, that Jesus is taking our judgment upon himself, then we'll need to bear it upon ourselves at the end. And so James is calling us to get this, that if you are prone to judgmental realities or you're prone to running away, we have a God who didn't uh, run away, but he came and he took the judgment upon himself. So how do we respond, James? What do we do with this? Here we go. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. See that? He's saying if you you can't show mercy, that's a pretty living proof that you haven't received mercy. If you're a merciless person who finds it easy to judge and point fingers, you need to realize that there are lots of fingers pointing back at you. And that there is a day of reckoning coming where your mercilessness will, become, will be turned back upon yourself. You need to understand. You need to receive mercy. And then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So the call to us and the big picture of today is this. Trust Jesus in the gospel. Trust him. Give your whole life into a deep trusting, loving relationship that he really did provide mercy for you. 
You are a recipient of radical and powerful love. You're a sinner saved by grace. And so we act that way. We take our life, our actions, our addictions, our anxieties, and we trust that He loves us. And at the same time, we remember that it's our task, uh, kind of with our fellow believers, to set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, as Timothy reminds us, or Paul reminds us in Timothy. We also, I think, would do well to remain generous of heart. I don't think our world needs more people calling each other down. My next point you'll see is that we ought to speak the truth in love. We are called to be a people of truth. But I would say that we need to start by finding the generosity of God that came upon us to be upon others. That we would find generosity once again. Let's not die on the hill of these funny little arguments that are leaving us disconnected from people who God's called us to love. Let's not find ourselves judging people down in a way that makes us maybe feel better for a moment, but disconnected from the people God's called us to love for a lifetime. It can be so easy in the moment when the, the blood is boiling and you've got convictions and you're thinking about the environment or you're thinking about masks or you're thinking about something that you know you believe strongly in and to have the wisdom to put it down and to say, what kind of bridge am I building for the stuff that really matters? I might win a battle and I might lose a war. I might beat someone but lose them. And I wonder in that moment if we could be wise and thoughtful about how we love people. And I would suggest that whilst we remain generous hearts, we need to maintain a love for truth. This is not a sermon trying to teach us that we should you know, just become tolerant of anything and everything and, and kind of just lose ourselves in the acceptance society that just says, you do you and we'll do us. No, no, we're called to contend with wisdom, for the, the truth of Scripture, for God's created ways, that we're a people who, who want to show how God created us and that He created us, and that we're made in His image, male and female. All these things are crucial. But mercy ought to triumph over judgment, that we would realize we're recipients and we're givers of mercy. And it's unlikely that at the end of our lives we're going to be delighted that we were remembered for being judges who called people down, who canceled others, as much as we'll be those who encouraged each other. As the church, we call each other to the high standards of Jesus. But as the church on mission, we call each other to become the high standards of Jesus' mercy in the world, and that we would love with his mercy, and that we would reveal to the world the beautiful love that he has for us. Let's stand. I'm going to call the band up. Maybe you want to think about two things. Firstly, think about a, a subject you are passionate about. Secondly, I want to call you to think about a person that you are struggling with. A situation or a subject that you're passionate about. Most of the things we talk about, they're good things, whether it's the environment or other things we may be passionate about. But it's that thing that makes your blood boil when someone disagrees with you. 
think about that thing. Think about a person or two, colleagues, family, friends, who have the ability to cause your blood to boil. And then ask the question of Jesus. Jesus, help me to become a person of love into those situations and towards those kinds of people. There's no simple answer here. But there is a God who in Jesus has cleansed your conscience, who has then called you in humility to learn from him and to love like him. And if we can do that, who knows what might happen. So Jesus, this morning, we recognize that this world is not uncomplicated. And that as we go back to work tomorrow morning, there's every chance we face some of these situations. As we go back to school, wherever we go back to, we will face complexity. But I pray that you would help us to love others as, you would, as we would have them love us. But we would do that with a deep conviction about how you have created us. That we would call people to a communal consensus around what true love really is. And that we do that with wisdom and with grace, with love and with tenderness. That mercy would triumph over judgment. And that while we hold dear to our convictions, we remain generous with our hearts. Oh, Jesus, teach us that difficult balance. Holding on to convictions. Generous servants with our hearts. Help us, Holy Spirit. It's a privilege to walk into this world. I've got a sense of God wanting to remind us this morning that tomorrow morning when you go to work or to do your day, you have an inheritance. You've got something. God has called you. He's, he's planned tomorrow and the next day and the next decades with something, good works in advance for you specifically to do. They're going to require courage. They're going to require trust in Him. They're going to require that you believe in His promises. But you are not moving into a random set of circumstances. You're moving into a world that God has planned good works in advance for you to do. Specific people that God has called you to love, you to think about, you to pray about, you to help, to find and to follow Him. Your mission is a beautiful mission field. Your life and your giftings are specifically wired for the mission God's called you to. And He wants to show you mercy, and He wants to let His mercy flow through you. And so to that end, we pray, come Holy Spirit. If you wouldn't mind joining me, just pop your hands in the air if you're comfortable. It's a sign of saying, we need God in this complex world. Whether out loud or under your breath, just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Where our hearts are hard, soften them where we've denied our sin, open our eyes, where we've defended darkness, 
tenderize us to stop being defensive. And just come coach us this week in your presence and your power to be courageous men and women who walk towards your purposes, who learn to love well. Thank you that your mercy triumphs over judgment. Because of that, I pray that our mercy would triumph over judgment. Let this song be a communal, a corporate agreement that we're under your royal law, that it's you who is the royal king over us and you guide us. And we are delighted to be under you, Jesus. It is our highest privilege to be led by you, to be loved by you. And so coach us, so reveal to us your glory. As we sing, we give a little piece of our gratitude back by saying with our, all our hearts, we love you. Let's sing. Thank you.